Was Nikki Haley almost Trump's veep? Must hockey players celebrate gay pride? And did the Supreme Court leaker commit the perfect crime? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a Nash Review podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Moink. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we have Mike Pompeo coming out with a classic uh, political Washington memoir with some juicy tidbits that are already being digested. Among them is the story of Jared and Ivanka supposedly scheming to dump Mike Pence from the ticket and get Nikki Haley in there in his stead. They supposedly uh, maneuvered to have a, a meeting between Haley and Trump that, that this was the main point of it. It was kind of a mini audition. Nikki Haley was on Fox last night. We're recording Friday morning here. Denied it, said it was lies, gossip. She repeatedly said gossip was sort of a way of avoiding addressing any of the, the details of the story. What do you make of it? Well, it's it, right now there's, you know, between Pompeo and Haley, it's he said, she said, right? Uh, Nikki Haley's denying, denying this. But I will say this much. I think if that is what Jared and Ivanka were doing, I actually think there is some sense to it um, politically, which is that the um, the marriage between Donald Trump and the evangelical base had already been effected mm-hmm. and solemnized in the appointment of three solid justices to the Supreme court. Uh, and his political issue was with suburban women. <laughs> like, and so, and Nikki Haley might, might've helped in that regard uh, in a way that Mike Pence, uh, a little stiff and forbidding in personality uh, wouldn't. So I think there's some sense to it. Nikki Haley has, serious ambitions, uh, which have been fed by her success in South Carolina. And then, um, you know, interest, uh, lots of interest on the national, uh, level. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised, but I also (laughs) wouldn't be shocked if, um, Haley was barely aware of what Jared and Ivanka wanted from her or wanted from that meeting or that like, in a sense, as millions of little rumors and plots under the Trump years were, there was just like a kind of lark quality to all of these meetings where yeah. well, Trump I, might try something they, cockamamie. Yeah. I, I think there's something a, a lot to that. Charlie, I was talking to someone from uh, Pence world ab- about this and it, this wasn't, you know, we, we heard these rumors. It wasn't a, a secret and Trump would just, uh, you know, he'd tell Pence, Oh, don't worry. This Nikki Haley thing. Oh, it's never going to happen. And then every, every time Trump would meet with some political outsiders, what do you think about Nikki? You know, <laughs> or just, just to, to test and just to play with it. And I'm, uh, I doubt that Nikki would be barely aware as MBD put it, but I'm sure she, she, uh, nothing was a, uh, explicit, so so there was always deniability. Um, but uh, what do you make of the story, and does it tell us anything about early twenty twenty four jockeying? I'm not sure how much it tells us about early twenty twenty four jockeying. I do think it's probably true. When I was at Oxford, I had this great history professor, exactly the sort of man you would expect to be a history professor at Oxford, with the tweed jacket and the patched elbows, drank sherry during tutorials. And when I signed up for my British Colonial America class, he said to me, ah, ah, Jefferson, we'll do Jefferson. He said, Jefferson's great because you can always find a quote to agree with you because he said everything. At every point he believed this and he believed the opposite and he said it so beautifully. Well, Trump doesn't say everything so beautifully, but that's how Trump is. Does anyone doubt for a single second that Trump didn't at some point go down a rabbit hole in pursuit of Nikki Haley as his VP? She is more popular with the Republican base than people think. 
she is an attractive politician. She looks good on TV. She speaks well. He had worked with her. Of course this happened. How serious it was in the grand scheme of things is impossible to tell. But I don't doubt that Trump did this. And probably the same thing with five, six, ten other people. Maybe one day he got crossed with Mike Pence and he decided we need someone else. And the first person who came into his mind was Nikki Haley. Maybe this was the seventh person that came into his mind. And she will have heard about it. She's a good internal politician as well. She's been clever in the way she's positioned herself in the Republican Party. And uh, I am quite convinced he said this. I can imagine Trump saying almost anything and the opposite of almost anything. What it says in the long run, I don't know. Clearly, it does indicate that she has some talent because I doubt that her name would have come up in the first place. I doubt she'd have been offered the job she eventually got at the UN in the first place if she was completely devoid of merit. Whether or not it helps her uh, in the array of uh, candidates, I don't know. So, Maddie, another nugget from Pompeo's book, Pompeo, a, a big-time China hawk. And he had this, this weird phenomenon and, again, uh, something that was visible from the, from the outside, where, where Trump was, was really soft on, on China, on, on COVID and COVID origins for a long time in kind of a weird way for a guy who has reoriented how the country um, thinks, thinks about um, China, or at least with his, his presence, he was an, an inflection point in our relationship with China. And Pompeo says that at, at some point in, in this uh, period, Trump told him to uh, shut the, the F up about China. Yeah. So, I mean, what he's written is perfectly plausible. I think it what comes through in, in the book and the various anecdotes, um, there's there's one of Trump and meeting Kim Jong-un and trying to make light of his insult of calling him little rocket man and how he handled that. That Trump, basically, he likes being liked. He likes, he likes people who like him and he wants to manage that on his own terms. So it's, it's perfectly consistent with that, that he would have um, not wanted... Uh, Pompeo to make a fuss about the the China things in the beginning. Of course, later down the line, he then he then changed his position on that. Um, but as much as it's, it's an interesting read, uh, certainly the, the parts of it I've seen, uh, you do you do get the sense with with Pompeo that uh, he's obviously a smart guy, talented, and, and was very effective in that role. But I just don't know the extent to which people really care all that much about foreign policy. Obviously, we do, um, but I think most voters generally don't so even if if that is true i don't think it's particularly damaging to trump and we're talking about this before the podcast but when people do care about foreign policy it's usually uh dovish they they tend to be more dovish than than people in washington um but i think in terms of how this is any indication of how 2024 uh campaigns are going to play out i do i do think that you're seeing here you're beginning to see here the different ways that people are trying to handle trump so obviously Pompeo and Pence um, are are going for the jugular in a way and, and not holding back with their criticisms. Uh, Pompeo's positioning himself as sort of the brains of, of the administration in, in one crucial sense. Pence obviously positioned himself as the, the heart of the administration, its moral spine, basically. Um, but Haley has, has taken a, a different approach and she's actually really... Walked on eggshells a lot as she had that interview with Brett Baer on Fox News, and and she dodged questions about about Trump. She's obviously got some loyalty still there, but it's a strategic loyalty, um, and so she is emphasising how she's different from Trump as opposed to why she's better than him. So she's a different generation. She's female. Uh, she says she's got lots of new ideas. Um, so I think I think that is uh, is an interesting point of contrast between the sparring. Uh, between Haley and Pompeo. So, MBD, speaking of prospective 2024 candidates, Joe Biden, who has this classified documents controversy going, said he has no regrets about how this was handled. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> Not really. Uh, well, it, it only makes sense in that, uh, in the sort of never admit guilt, never admit a mistake strategy that sometimes people use to get through controversies, which is to basically say, uh, if you say, I don't regret anything, you're saying, I don't believe I did anything wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and 
because uh, if you do say I did something wrong or mistakes were made, that can that can sometimes lead to more of a feeding frenzy. Um, so I think he's just trying to get the media back on his side of like, oh, this isn't a big deal. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to work exactly because of the way there's been the drip drip of revelations that that sort of gets the media going. Um, makes it exciting. Like there's going to be a new development every week in the story. Um, but no, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I, I would think the best thing to do would just be honest that there's, um, you know, classified documents when they were exiting the white house were misplaced in his private residence. And that as soon as his lawyers discovered them, they did the right thing. Yeah, Charlie, I, I don't know w- w- how hard it would be just to say, I, I wish it has been clearly, you know, a, a box of documents showed up in my garage. I wish that this had been handled differently. <laughs> this shows a few things, I think, none of them good. One is that while Trump may be the most famous and most egregious practitioner of just tweeting through it, he is not the only one, and in fact, the more that he did and does it, the more others will follow suit. Uh, the second thing it shows is that the President of the United States, Joe Biden, is and always has been a blusterer. This is not that out of character for Biden. He is one of those guys who finds the angle, says it loudly. He has some tells when he lies, which is constantly, he says, no joke. What he's really saying here is, this is bad for me. Uh, The third thing it shows is that the White House has lost control of this story. And I got this wrong from the start. I thought at the beginning, this would not be a big deal. I thought the media would bury it, that there would be only one tranche found and it would take a back seat, that it would probably make it difficult to indict Trump, but that beyond that, this wouldn't materially hurt Biden. I'm not so sure now. I think this has been much worse for Biden than for the Democrats than I initially thought. And I think Biden saying I have no regrets illustrates that. As Michael says, it does seem to me to be a, an attempt to bring the press back onto side to get that sentiment back into the bloodstream but of course you can't do that at the end of the news cycle you have to do it from the beginning it is incompatible with i didn't know anything about this and it's not a great look when you're being investigated as he now is so yeah i think the the press we talked about a little this we talked about this recently that one, they, they got him so ginned up about Mar-a-Lago and, you know, there were no nuclear codes or anything of Mar-a-Lago as, as far as we, we know. So they're kind of primed to, uh, to, to pounce, to, to use the word on, on, uh, on, on this thing. And then it's also, it's like Afghanistan. I mean, just the, the, the inherent problem of it is impossible to ignore. And, and, and they know that the administration isn't being forthcoming about this and it wasn't transparent from the, from the beginning. So at least for now, they've, They've sunk their teeth into it. MBD, exit question to you. Let's go back to the Republican side. Double-barreled exit question. Nikki Haley will be the f- first a non-Trump Republican to announce for president. Yes or no? She was teasing it heavily uh, on Fox News yesterday. And she will end up on the Republican ticket in 2024. Yes or no? Ooh, good question. Um She will be the first, and she won't be on the ticket. Uh, she's not I, – I don't think she's that impressive on the national stage. Um, I, I've just seen her leave a room cold, even a, a room that was primed to enjoy her speeches. Um, I don't think she works uh, as a national candidate, so I don't think she'll make the ticket. So, Charlie, we have a yes and a no. I think she might. I wouldn't have said that two days ago. 
but the tone she struck on Fox News made me wonder, would she end up on the ticket? Wait, so, I, sorry, wait, so, so what was that? So you were answering the first question, whether she'll go first? Correct. Okay, so you, you kind of think she'll go first? or I kind of think, think she'll, she'll go, first. go first now. Okay. This, All right. this so we is have... the result of no strategic insight of mine whatsoever, yeah, yeah, other than yeah. that I saw the same videos that <laughs> we you always did. take that as a given, Charlie. <laughs> no, so we have, a yes, think, we have a yes and a tentative right. yes on going first, and then, sorry, so the, the ticket. I think there is an above average chance that she will end up on the ticket. As I say, the notion that she is disliked or regarded in a lukewarm manner by the base is false, whether she should be or not. And I could see her being an asset to a Republican ticket in many ways. Okay. So we got a a tentative yes and maybe a better average shot. Maddie. Uh, Yes, I think she will um, be first. And I do think she'll be on the ticket. Um, not least because I can't really think who else there is. Uh, and since there's a fairly decent chance that Trump um, will be the nominee, uh, she's definitely kept that door open in a way that some of the others haven't. So I'm going to say yes, she's going to uh, go first. I, I think it, it's really awkward. I mean, it, it just this speaks poorly to... Um, your political foresight, just having said categorically, she wouldn't run if Trump um, uh, ran, you know, whatever it was a year ago or whatever. Obviously you just, you get, you got to have, have in your mind that actually might run and I might want to run anyway. So just don't say that (laughs) you can say other things, but just don't, don't say it. So she's going to ask that question a lot. Uh, I'm going to say no on a, on a ticket. She obviously has a a lot of uh, attractions, but I, I think the um, a lot of the other candidates do not have a high do not have a high regard uh, for her, and I'm not sure how well her campaign is going to go. With that, let's get to uh, what a lot of listeners have been waiting for, Charlie: a Moink read, and especially a Moink read from a devoted fan of Moink, namely yourself, the number one fan of Moink, who is related in any way to this podcast, including in a production capacity. (laughs) (laughs) Take that, Sarah. You got to like, you got to, you got to try to like Moik more, Sarah, to keep up. If that's that's possible. Apparently so. I'll work on it. Well, I think one of the reasons I am such a big Moik fan is because I know that 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company. It's owned by the Chinese, and their hogs are given something called ractopamine, which is banned in 160 countries, including China. Yet you will find it in your grocery aisle every day, but you don't have to buy it because there is a better way, and that way is Moink. Moink is a subscription service. It delivers grass-fed, grass-finished beef and lamb pastured pork and chicken and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. And Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, which means that Moink meat tastes like it should because the family farm does it better. The Moink difference is a difference you can taste and you can feel good knowing you're helping family farms stay financially independent too. How this works is you choose the meat delivered in every box You can choose ribeyes, chicken breasts, pork chops, salmon fillets, much more. And you can cancel any time. But you won't want to because moink meat is absolutely terrific. It's pretty much all we eat here in the Cook household. If you want to get on board, all you need to do is go to moinkbox.com slash editors. If you add the slash editors on the end of moinkbox.com, which is M-O-I-N-K box.com, you'll get free filet mignon in every order for a year. Thank you so much, Charlie. We're we're not fooling around, people. Everyone loves Moink, and you got to check it out if you haven't yet. So, Maddie, we got a uh, particularly ridiculous culture war controversy going. NHL, a couple nights ago, had Pride 
night. They they have missed Pride Month because uh, in, in June because um, I'm not sure when the, the Stanley Cup might might uh, stretch into June. I'm not sure now. It takes so long. But anyway, ho- hockey is not a, a summer sport. But uh, who cares? You know, it's it's always Pride Month, and they, they had a a Pride Night where in the warm ups the players had to to wear these jerseys that I, I would have hoped more of them would have uh, objected to just on taste grounds, totally absurd rainbow versions of their names on the back and their, their numbers and every player in the NFL, uh, NHL, sorry, dutifully wore these jerseys. Cause they're all so pro pride, uh, you know, and NHL just famously, you know, a woke, a woke sport. These, these players are, are re- really into the, the latest fashionable social causes. We all know that except for one, one, a uh, member of the, the Philadelphia Flyers, Ivan Pavarov. I, I might not be saying his name uh, correctly, but he did not wear this jersey because he's Eastern Orthodox. And this was um, the uh, focus of the post-game interview where it was extremely awkward. He was looked like a, a hunted man. Um and, you know, was asked why he didn't do this. And he said, I, I respect my religion. And then there's an awkward silence. Someone's like, what, what is your religion? <laughs> he's like, he's an Orthodox. He's like, can we please talk about hockey now? They did move on and talk about hockey. But then there was this cascade of criticism. You know, the Flyers should be fined. He should be kicked off the team. He should be sent, sent to the, the front in Ukraine to be, to be uh, artillery to death by the Ukrainians if he doesn't like this country and what it stands for, on and on and on. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot wrong with this. The, the first thing is just why do we have to politicize everything? One of the joys of, of sport, one of the joys of music or any of these other leisure activities is that it gets away from politics. You focus on things that bring people together instead of things that divide people. It's a night off. It's something you can bring your kids to. That's that's the point of it. That's why leisure is the basis of, of culture and culture is bigger than politics. So first of all, this is just irritating because it's yet another example of how the left wants to politicize everything. Um, but it's also gaslighting because they politicize something. And then when somebody wants to opt out and say, listen, I'd actually rather not, um, chiefly in this case, because there's a disagreement. Um, it's like, why are you, this is insulting to the, the gay community. You're you're the one who's politicizing the thing. We saw the same thing when Jonathan Isaac refused to participate in the Black Lives Matter protest during the NBA. NBA he didn't want to kneel. He wanted to stand for the national anthem. Again, his position was the normal one. It was, it was his teammates who were trying to make a political point, and yet he gets criticized and cascaded for this. I mean, it's just egregious. I think that... Um, that at least the the, the hockey uh, authorities have have at least said the right thing, and that he's entitled to have a difference of opinion. They're certainly not going to force him to do this. And um, I thought the way he handled the interview was great as well. He said, "This is my religion. Uh, I don't really have anything else to say about it." Now back to the sport, which is what this is supposed to be about. Um, but yeah, just unsurprising, yet maddening. Yeah, so Charlie, you, you've you've written about this, and we're just in this this place now where if you just if you just mind your own business, that itself is hate. You you engage in what the norm is. You you wear the normal jersey you do every single night and warm ups. That that's hate. I have three thoughts on this. The first is that Prorov dealt with this perfectly. What we saw him do is diversity. It's not an attack on diversity. It doesn't undermine diversity. That is diversity. If you truly have a diverse country, then you're going to have people who have different religious beliefs. You might not like them. Perhaps you love them. Irrespective, you are going to have people who think things that you don't, who opt out of the mainstream, who are not on board with the rest of their teammates, the prevailing culture, perhaps every single other person in the country. And if those people choose to quietly sit on the sidelines, they should be left alone for it. Nothing he said could be construed in any reasonable sense as an attack. 
He stayed quiet on his own in the locker room. Then when asked about it, he said, I respect everybody. I'm going to stay true to myself. I have nothing else to add. Do you have any questions about hockey? You just couldn't have done it better in my view. Second thing is that this does represent an escalation. If you look back to the NFL kneeling saga, the compromise that the NFL arrived at was that those who dissented from the national anthem or the flag could stay in the locker room. Now, those who thought that Colin Kaepernick's protest was useful, which I didn't, but that's irrelevant. It's not my protest, it's his. Said, no, no, no. He should be able to protest on the field, to kneel on the field. The NFL said, no, we'll compromise. He can stay in the locker room. Now, staying in the locker room, the bit that wasn't good enough for Colin Kaepernick is sufficient to kick Prorov off the team in the view of many of the same people who were pushing in precisely the opposite direction when it was Kaepernick. That is a shift, a serious shift, in four and a half years. The last thing I would say is that one does not actually have to have any religious convictions. One does not have to have any political objections even to a given organization to object to wearing its shirt. I'm not religious. I'm not against gay marriage. I'm broadly pro-gay. I doubt that I share many of Prorov's worldview. But I wouldn't wear a pride shirt because the movement that it represents is illiberal on a bunch of other topics that I care a great deal about, including free speech, freedom of conscience, and so on. I wouldn't wear a Black Lives Matter jersey either. That isn't to say I don't think that small b, small l, small m, Black Lives Matter, but I don't like that organization. I don't like what it says on their website. I don't like the people who run it. There are many right-leaning organizations with which I <laughs> generally agree that I would not want to wear a sweater representing either. I thought about this yesterday a little bit because people got into the weeds on the question of religious liberty. He said it's his religion. That's fine. That's enough of an objection for me. I'm a classical liberal. But I thought back to the protests over the Iraq war I saw in London in 2003. And if I had been moved to join them, I would have felt deeply uncomfortable because if you look at all of the pictures from those protests, some of them said stop the war, some of them said don't invade Iraq. A lot of them said other things. Campaign for nuclear disarmament, mm -hmm. stop eating meat. And I would have, as a non-joiner, as a habitual, reflexive, dispositional non-joiner, had to position myself in the crowd in such a way that the only cause that I was endorsing was don't invade Iraq. I think the notion that people who decline to wear a jersey, which is a political endorsement, are somehow enemies of humanity or deemed to be against every single thing that the organization in question might believe is ridiculous. And if we have gone so far now that we are lambasting people and punishing them, which thankfully the NHL did not, but which many hockey commentators wanted the NHL to, uh, then we have crossed a Rubicon. So, so MBD, there, there are actually a number of profound things raised by this controversy, ridiculous though it is. One, and this is not unusual, but but here's the the NHL basically implicitly coercing every single one of its players to advance a social agenda that I would guess most of them, or at least some substantial number, don't support. And there was only one guy who, who was was willing to say, "No, I'm not going to do it." And you know, he hasn't been punished uh, officially by the NHL, but it was hugely uncomfortable. Uh, has been and is yeah. hugely uncomfortable. For him, and and this is why, and this goes to some of the controversies um, 
down in Florida with how DeSantis is waging the culture war. So it just raises the question in my mind, if there are some legitimate public hook, and I don't think there, there would be, it's a little hard to imagine, but some legitimate public hook for um, a, a democratic body to say sports leagues can't have pride nights. Would that be a, a more of a, um, a violation of liberalism, that act, or would it actually advance freedom? Because these players would actually be free to endorse gay pride on their own to whatever extent they want, rather be, being put in, the, put in the position where it's the default, right? And you have to, to stand out to say no, and you have to deal with these sort of questions and sort of um, abuses that Pavarov is dealing with, with now. That's, that's one question. And another um, it is this is just really extraordinary that you have the the position taken by every major religion on this matter. You have one person who is, is standing um, in 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 uh, on that same ground, and he has to do it on sort of the the thinnest shred of a dissenter's justification. I'm being true to myself. Yeah. So on the on the. On the last question first, it's interesting that we do this. It's, there's almost like a kind of ritual w- test of strength, right? Where every every couple months or every couple years, the the demand that employees affirm the the equality of uh, every type of sexuality runs into a dissenter. Like a few years ago, it was Daniel Murphy who's a baseball player in the New York Mets who suddenly was in the crossfire uh, for saying he didn't agree with that lifestyle. Uh, He was known to be a kind of devout and loud evangelical. Um, And, you know, then he tried to like explain like, but that doesn't prevent me from, you know, uh, investing in the lives of people like Billy Bean, you know, a a gay uh, executive in major league baseball. Billy, um, Billy Bean's gay? Um, no, not the. It's a different Billy Bean. It's not the oh, sorry. Oakland okay. A's Billy Bean, uh, <laughs> a, a former player. Oh, an executive. Um, it's fine. Two former players named Billy Bean that are have roles in baseball. But anyway, um, so <laughs> it, there's like a test of strength. And it, what's odd is that progressives tend to react as if like. Oh, we're st- there's this this sentiment still exists in society as if it like it's it's just giant surprise to them that the moral traditions of the three Ab- Abrahamic faiths haven't completely died out in the last five weeks. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and um, you know, I think they ex- I think on some level, progressives expected it to sort of go away, like you know, some of the spurious biblical uh, justifications for racism did, right? But those were were spurious modern kind of inventions that were very easy for most Christian churches who fell for them to dispense with. Um, you know, this this is deeply embedded in the in the basic anthropology and, and theology of of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Um, so yeah, it's 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 an odd thing that they treat it like it's this big surprise, but I do think that there's almost like uh, a latent desire in the culture to see one of these uh, controversies really blow up and somehow settle the matter for all time afterward. And none of them quite do. Um, yeah. Well, did you it- notice the word that started to pop up in the vocabularies of the hockey announcers and analysts who were after Prorov assimilate. Yeah. It, he had no, to assimilate. No, it's a weird, it was a weird, uh, conform. Yeah. Demand for conformity, which, uh, it, it, it's very odd. Um, I don't know. And how about where the we'll implicit? Uh, co- how about the implicit coercion point? Well, listen. So I agree. Have, have a, yeah, good. I, I I would not like legislatures. I, I I would not like legislatures to get involved in in a in a ham fisted way in this. It not not yet. Anyway, I don't. 
I don't think it's blown up that way yet. Uh, people still have uh, plenty of access to courts um, when when employers overstep their bounds or or, or so on. But we, we do have a, a burgeoning issue where the trend of civil rights jurisprudence and Title VII uh, case law is tending towards the conclusion that one must believe certain things about the equality of every, the moral equality of every type of sexual behavior or identity, or else the workplace is by definition hostile, right? And so every employer then has like this giant incentive to catechize their employees in these views mm-hmm. to prevent these lawsuits or to um, protect themselves in the event of a lawsuit. Uh, so that that is that does have to come to a head at some point, uh, just as like the other the other questions around this. I mean, there is something just deranged on, on about Americans on this question, right? Like Charlie and I used to joke about how in the in the masterpiece cake shop thing, like you can deny any people, even uh, you know, gay people, even even people living in a a thirty person polycule. A, a baked cake for any reason, right? You don't like the the order they made. You don't you don't like the decor they want on the cake. It, you're, you want to close up shop that day. It's too far. The delivery is too far. Uh, you just don't like the cut of their jib. But if your if your objection is, well, I think it violates my religious beliefs to participate in the event that this is attached to. Well, then the Supreme Court has to to, to get involved. And maybe it's actually compulsory for you to, to bake the cake now. Um, I, I think the other, I, I mean, there's a, kind, that's a kind of schizophrenia that uh, I just, uh, I don't know if we can get over. The, the other problem here is just how selective it is. I'm with Michael in rejecting the, I haven't heard too many of them in earnest, but in theory, at least, the calls for government intervention. I think the case would probably be stronger in Major League Baseball because it's a government-created monopoly. But still, I would be If, if baseball hadn't, hadn't finally gotten with the program, I definitely would have uh, supported congressional legislation to mandate the pitch clock. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, do, I do think this is a, a blind spot on the left. They cannot see that this is narrow and selective and one-sided. If you look, for example, at the decals on NFL helmets, each NFL player is told that they can pick one of those. I think there are six. Maybe they added a seventh. Or opt-out. Now, there is an opt-out. That's great. But if they want to support social justice, that's the language the NFL uses, then they get to pick from six or seven options from a pre-approved list. Now, I would ask, why on earth is the NFL involved in this at all? And the answer from the NFL is because social justice is important. But they don't mean that. What they mean is the conception of social justice that certain people consider to be important in the way that they consider it to Mm -hmm. be important. Because if the, say, backup quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars, who's an evangelical Christian, is involved around here in pro-life charities, said, I would like to wear a pro-life decal because I believe social justice is important. The NFL would say no. So wouldn't it be better not to have any decals at all? Wouldn't it be better to say some of the players in the NFL are in favor of the Black Lives Matter movement with the capital B and capital L and capital M, and some of them are involved in the pro-life movement, and all of them are different, and so we will play football. Uh, We will allow all involved to have their own private views and do what they wish in their free time, uh, and we'll get out of it completely. But they don't. And so what you end up with is a conversation that sounds as if it is holistic, that sounds as if it is universalist, but is actually really narrow uh, in what it is that's being celebrated. Yeah, so, so Maddie, uh, you know, what, what, what's happening here is just classic. It's, 
it's culture. So it, it, it used to be, you know, 1950s America was soaked in patriotism. And there are all sorts of uh, means to, to make the, the average person patriotic. You know, you, you were going to, we're going to play the national anthem before every sports event and everyone's going to stand up and yeah, sure. You're free to sit down, but if you do sit down, people are going to stare at you. So it's better to stand up and your kids are going to uh, do the pledge of allegiance um, every morning before their classes. And yeah, your kid can refuse to do it. And then there might be a legal case and sure you can vindicate your rights after a long legal fight, but all your neighbors are going to think you're crazy. So it's better just to go along. And I, this is, this is, you know, an element of uh, this is how any society coheres. But what's happened is this kind of this this woke social justice agenda has sort of wormed its way in and uh, achieved this kind of status, at least in the elite, elite institutions of our culture, where where they are all um, using this kind of grinding cultural machinery to impose and, and make people go along with this agenda. Yeah. So I mean, there is a theory that this while being a, a new cultural force, that, that this is actually political in origin. It was Christopher Caldwell who wrote about this in The Age of Entitlement and basically said you can you can trace all of this back to civil rights legislation. Um, and there were people warning about this at the time, saying you're creating an apparatus that will be used for things beyond racial justice, which obviously was a, was a just cause, but the... Um, the way that the law uh, is, is set up, and, and Michael referenced this with Title Seven, but it's not just Title Seven; it's Title Nine. It's it's the whole thing. Um, is that once you've said you can have massive government intervention in order to coerce people to do the right thing morally, um, you can expand what you define the right thing morally as, as being. And the dominant religion, uh, and religion is the most uh, potent cultural force that, that you have, the dominant religion is this uh, rights-based religion, the sense of entitlement, the sense of, well, I want people to recognize my sexuality. I want people to recognize my identity. The list just keeps going on and on and on. Um, and because it's this dominant culture, this dominant religion, it's it's presented as this in this full neutrality, uh, which you see when 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 people uh, get outraged that somebody still has a belief that's now considered unacceptable, um, they they say, "Well, this is the dominant cultural belief, so get on board, and we can make you get on board through this through this uh, system of of law." Um, so it's a it's a pretty terrifying thing, and of course, I think Republicans especially are are, are nervous about actually diagnosing that as the origin of it, because obviously nobody wants to be. Um, presented as being against civil rights legislation, but that was a slippery slope and it has proven a slippery slope. So MBD, extra question to you. Would be dissenters will be heartened by the example of Ivan Provorov, who stood by his conscience and hasn't been officially expelled from the NHL or suspended or, or punished, or will be frightened by what's happened to him and more likely on the margins to, to get on board whatever they're being asked to get on board. Well, the response, I mean, quietly is that his jersey has been sold out in the last couple of days. Uh, you can't buy an Ivan Provorov jersey uh, right now um, without a long wait period. So people are expressing support for him uh, precisely because of this controversy, but they're doing so in a quiet way that's almost anonymous, right? They're not, they're not out in the street. Um, so I think on the whole, um, I think on the whole, people are scared, are, are going to be scared. Uh, I think, you know, I think all of these incidents are demonstrations meant to intimidate, uh, and that they, they do have an effect. Matty Kearns. Yeah. I, I think that most people, uh, want a quiet life and they will do what is needed to to have a quiet life. And even if, even if they have uh, strong principles or convictions, I mean, I mean, we're a slightly unrepresentative group because we've managed to make a living out of expressing our opinions. Um, but most people don't feel that confident in doing that. They don't want to draw attention to themselves. They don't want to make a big moral stand or a fuss. And so it's unusual. It's the unusual thing to do. And to Michael's point, like even if, 
people quietly agree and are willing to show support quietly. Um, I don't think that that's, that's the normal response to these things. And so I think people probably are scared and uh, are admiring um, of, of him for taking a stand, but probably don't think that they want to do it themselves. Charlie? I was heartened by the response from the NHL and from the, what do you say in hockey, coach of the Flyers? Yeah, the coach was great. The coach said and made sure to use Provorov's nickname, Provy, in doing so, that he's always admired that Provy is true to himself. And then the NHL said that nobody is obliged to take part in these initiatives. Now, we can criticize the NHL, if we like, for holding the initiative in the first place, but that's the right response. And I hope it is indicative of an understanding that that is the attitude that is displayed by most Americans who were told, and I know we have disagreements on this, we've had a whole podcast where the three uh, and four of us have argued about this, but it is what we were told during the debate over gay marriage. How does it affect you? How does it affect you if I go and get married to a man? And that Again, whether it should have or not, Maddie Michael the Rich, that was successful as a slogan. It was successful as an argument. It has led to a position in which the majority of Republicans are either fine with or don't care about gay marriage. This is different. This is saying, no, you have to celebrate it. You have to celebrate it or you'll be fine. That was one suggestion. You'll be cut from the team. That was another suggestion. Or you'll be deported to Russia. <laughs> was, a, was a third suggestion. Almost literally a joke. I don't think that there is support for that. And I think this may actually have been an overreach on the part of those who wish it were otherwise. I hope you're right. But I think the answer is people are going to be more afraid. With that, quick plug for NR Plus, digital subscription service at nationalreview.com, your way around our metered paywall, your way, if you sign up and log in, to see 90% fewer ads, it's like magic, your way to get deeper into the NR community through commenting, through getting in, invited to exclusive events and calls, and even, if that floats your boat, being part of our private Facebook group. I don't know how uh, to, to plug uh, NR Plus any better than to say, Megan Kelly herself is a member of NR Plus. And if it's good enough for Megan Kelly, people, it is good enough for you. So please, right after listening to this podcast, or even right now, you can pause, go to our website, sign up for NR Plus, and join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR Plus. So, Charlie, not shockingly, the Supreme Court, not known for its investigative powers. Anyone who's wanted to solve a crime has never said, hey, let's go to the, the Supreme Court's police force that kind of walks around the building and, and tries to keep these justices secure. Let's go to them to, to solve it. It's like Scotland Yard. Uh, but John Roberts did not go to the outside, to uh, the FBI or someone to try to track down this uh, leaker of the uh, Dobbs decision or a draft that was basically identical to the final opinion of the, the Dobbs opinion, and lo and behold, nothing so far has come to this investigation, although they supposedly narrowed down the suspects, but they have not nailed anyone. This seems to have been a mistake, and I suspect it will have profoundly negative consequences. The details we've received about the investigation make it look risible, I think some of the questions that were asked included, did you do it? <laughs> was it you? <laughs> Most of the participation was voluntary. The people in charge of the investigation had no experience in this. I don't think it was set up for success. And that worries me because what we are now left with is a successful leak. A leak that was not punished, was not uncovered, and could be replicated. 
in connection with this, I've read some descriptions of the Supreme Court's IT systems and have learned that it may be impossible to know if an email has been sent from the Supreme Court, given current infrastructure. So at the very least, the Supreme Court should upgrade and update its systems so that this is more difficult to achieve in the future because the disincentives that would have flown from a successful discovery are not going to arrive. So, Maddie, I mean, this is a was a, obviously a dead serious attack on the Supreme Court as an institution and an attempt by foul means to change this decision one way or the other. The most uh, dire version of, of that interpretation of that is they, they actually wanted to expose a justice to assassination. Sam Alito has talked publicly about this possibility, and we had someone actually show up on Brett Kavanaugh's street with the, the materials and some level of intent, not clear how serious uh, he was at the end of the day, thank God, since he he turned himself in, called call, call the, the cops on himself. But a, a guy who sh- showed up, you know, w- with with the appropriate stuff to carry out an assassination at Brett Kavanaugh's house as a result of this leak. So you think you you wouldn't, even if there's some institutional reason that Roberts wants to keep it in house with his his own um, uh, crew, you, you would think the higher institutional consideration is to nail this person to make sure it never happens again. Yeah, I mean, this is literally the worst breach of confidentiality in the court's history. And the, the man outside Kavanaugh's house was was charged with attempted murder. So it doesn't really get more serious than that. There's also a number of other consequences that we can see. I mean, Michigan's Proposal 3 that got on the ballot, that was in part because of the timing of the leak. Um, it coincided with the signature gathering for this proposal that I think otherwise, honestly, wouldn't have been successful. So you now have essentially abortion on demand up till birth in the state of Michigan uh, because of this leaker, which I'm, I'm sure is that person is likely quite happy about, um, presuming their motives. But yeah, the, the marshal is obviously limited in, in investigating these matters. And so for that reason, I think that uh, we should be looking to Congress or the Justice Department to appoint a special investigator, someone who is able to do things that the marshal is not able to do, someone who is able to um, issue warrants, search warrants, somebody is able to do lie detector tests, that kind of stuff, because, you know, it's not, it's not, I mean, obviously the, the, the people um, who, are, who are being asked under oath, did you do it, are risking perjury, uh, but it's, there's no way of finding out that they they're perjuring themselves unless we do these other things. So I think it's absolutely uh, something that should be done. MBD. Yeah, this is a this is a bad news day for the Supreme Court that they they weren't able to find an exposed leaker. I'm worried. I'm worried that the leaker's gotten away, right? Like that, you know, maybe it's a clerk that has now gone on to another prestigious job in our legal system. Um and this would have been an excellent time to expel uh, a bad actor uh, from the elite. And and we failed to do it, as we usually do. Um, everything that you said, Rich, and, and that Rich and Maddie said are, are, are right. I mean, I'm worried that now the court itself must retreat to, you know, really kludgy attempts right to replace the institutional trust that existed previously with what watermarks you know on on paper to try to prevent leaks or 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 discourage them i I don't know what um it's probably bad for the functioning of the court um and yeah i mean I, i don't think uh I mean, Congress can act too. I mean, they, they don't have to just settle for John Roberts throwing up his hands. Mm-hmm. So Charlie Cook, next question to you. What would be worse in your view that we never find out who the leaker is or we find out who the leaker is and he or she is celebrated on the, the center left and gets a, a plum job somewhere at a law school? 
I think it would be worse if we never found out who it was. That would be at least transparent. We'd know who did it, and we would see who celebrated them, and we could react accordingly. The problem at the moment is that it is completely up in the air. We have absolutely no idea. Everyone is free to project their own theories onto it. And the playbook is still out there with a one on our record. Mary Kearns. Yeah, it's definitely worse if we don't know who it is for all the reasons Charlie just said. MBD. Um, I actually think it's a tough question. I think I, I agree with Charlie in that it's just good good to have it for the history books you know like (laughs) i think of it as uh my my john brennan rule is like maybe maybe the present fails to condemn this man to death uh that he so richly deserves but the future will look back on it and 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 they'll be able to scratch their heads and wonder uh why justice wasn't meted out to this person i'm gonna make it unanimous i think it would be i mean it's gonna be bad when this person if they were ever exposed, they they would be celebrated by part of the culture. But I I do agree it'd be worse if we never find out. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Maddie, you've been watching the show Don't Tell the Bride. Yes. So I'm getting married soon. And so um, I have been looking at this program, which I think is just a hilarious concept. It's uh, basically the, the groom is given a big chunk of money on the condi- – for his wedding on the condition that he doesn't consult his bride on anything. And there is a particularly hilarious episode where one groom decides that what he's going to do is he's going to have his bride get into her dress, have somebody come to the house, do the hair, do the makeup. Then he's going to put her and the bridesmaid in a car and they go to a field and they're informed that they will be skydiving into this other field and she will be walking down the field. And, of course, the most hilarious part is just being, why would he bother having her hair and makeup done? <laughs> I have no idea. So, anyway, uh, this bride is a real sport. And she's like, okay, this is not what I was expecting, but okay. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. The, the bridesmaid is says not a chance. Uh, but she she does. She lands safely and, and walks um, down this field with her hair completely messed up and her makeup completely messed up. And she's absolutely pumped full of adrenaline, which I'm sure is true anyway on your wedding day, but especially, especially this woman. Anyway, highly entertaining. Uh, it is a British program. I don't know if it's available in the States, but I really, really could not recommend it more strongly. Yeah. The, the real reality based program on, on wedding planning is, uh, should be called tell the groom on the condition that he agrees with you. That that's the way <laughs> way it works. Your, 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 your job as a groom is whenever asked, you know, does this cake taste good? Do you like it? You know, do you, do you like these napkins or whatever? Say yes. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so MBD, you've been working late at night. Yeah, just uh, one of these weeks where kids are falling ill again and staying home from school or um, babysitter can't make it for whatever reason. So I've been keeping uh, our, our late night editing team particularly Craig Young up late with me. Uh, but it's actually sometimes nice to get that high of working at like 11 or 12 at night, like you did back in college and um, just enjoying the the total uninterruptible silence of knowing everyone else is asleep and you can just focus uh, and get your column on Ivan Provorov done before the Friday deadline. Charlie, you've been marveling at the wealth of music, special, especially classical music, available on Apple Music. I have. When I was 12 or 13, it was my dad's 50th birthday, and my mom took my sister and me to London, and we tried to buy him as much classical music as we could. And she gave me a hundred pounds and said, go and choose him the music he'll like. I knew more than her about classical music and I knew what he would like. Yeah, we got about seven CDs, some of them double CDs or small collections, but seven for a hundred pounds. And this morning I was running through Apple Music trying to find a version of Don Giovanni I liked the most. There's 30 of them. You know, if you look up a given conductor, there's his entire 
history. Mm-hmm. Just there. And with Apple Music on like Spotify, it's lossless. So it's in essentially CD quality. This is a sea change in the world. This is an extraordinary improvement that costs $14 a month. And there is nothing on there that uh, would not have been in that, that shop in London. And there is a great deal more besides uh, and I think sometimes we aren't grateful enough for this, but I certainly was this morning. So, Charlie, we can't let you get out of here without getting a forced Jaguars chief prediction from you. Well, I'm going to the game. I'm going to Kansas City with a divisional round. I, I just, Rich, I just can't see the Jaguars beating the Chiefs. I don't think it's going to be a blowout, although it could be. But I suspect the Chiefs are going to come away with the win. They're a better team. They won, what, 13 games in the regular season, more? They've been to the AFC Championship game, I think, four or five years in a row. So I will say that the Chiefs are going to win. That's my prediction. Yeah, I would say Chiefs by less than a touchdown, but we'll see. Good luck and enjoy the trip. So I'm a late adopter uh, I, I watched Yellowstone late and via watching Yellowstone late and uh, catching up with season one, I came across the bar scene where the band Whiskey Myers plays their, their song Stone, which is just a wonderful, just a, a wonderful uh, song and uh, been been playing and listening to it a lot. Uh, th- this is not uh, my natural genre of music, Southern rock slash country, especially the country part. When I was over at Fox News more and Fox has a, a robust offering and, and red state type entertainment, I'd, I'd see these country music stars and I had no idea who they, they were. And Catherine Lopez is a big country music person. So I'd, you know, I'd, I'd leave a, a, a segment and I'd come back and say, Catherine, there's someone, there's this blonde lady. She's named Carrie something. She seemed like a big deal. Should I Carrie Underwood? I, I don't know. There's this guy, Gabe or something with a black cowboy hat, Garth Brooks. Anyway, I'm glad I, I ran across Whiskey Myers with that. It's time for our editor's picks. Maddie Kearns, what's your pick? My pick is Michael's piece on the NHL um, debacle. I just, I'm so uh, grateful that we have... Michael and that he's so uncompromising on these social issues. The uncompromising MBD. What do you got? Um, From the February 6th issue of national review. uh, I wanted to point out Jessica Hornick Evans uh, review essay on the uh, dynamite play. Apparently Leopold Stott by uh, Tom Stoppard, which uh, is by every account <laughs> issued from the guardian to our friend, John Podoritz to uh, Jessica herself is an absolutely devastating, beautiful masterpiece by the greatest living playwright. We have uh, kind of traces the narrative of a Jewish family in Vienna over a period of 50 years from 1899 through 1955. And, um, the way they were scattered by the war devoured by the Nazis uh, or partly assimilated into British culture. It's, it's an epic and um, Jessica's essay is very beautiful and, and recommends the uh, both itself and the play. So Charlie, do you have an alternative pick? The way this should have played out is when Maddie heard no. you groaning, she should have picked your NHL stuff, and then you still could have picked MBD's NHL stuff. <laughs> no, didn't I'm didn't happen. Pick, I'm picking MBD's anyway. Just going to go wow. through it. And I'm going to read a little bit of oh. MBD's oh, wow. because right. it finishes beautifully. Michael says, there are going to be many more such tests in the future. Why? Because the desire for affirmation in this case is bottomless. It springs from an insecurity that cannot be assuaged and that will only grow more paranoid as the conformism triumphs over more social institutions. That is perfectly put. Awesome. When we have a public MBD reading, you know it's been a good podcast. <laughs> See, <laughs> the, late, 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 the late night column <laughs> came through. Yeah, written at 3.30 a.m. <laughs> so uh, my pick is Andrew Stutterford's cover piece, the new issue, The False Promise of Electric Cars. 
anyone who's listened to Andrew uh, and his occasional appearances on this podcast knows he he is a, a deep guy who knows a, a ton about uh, history and and other things. But uh, he he could do worse than being our energy correspondent and has written a, a wonderfully well informed piece about electric cars. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or countless game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Moink, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. Oh, and by the way, this podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty. I don't know how. I almost forgot to uh, get that in. My apologies to Sarah. Anyway, thanks to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.